So again, the title is The Election, Love, and Hatred of God. Let me pray for a minute and then I'll just get into some introductory comments and and we will work on this uh, very difficult passage and chapter in Romans chapter 9. So let's pray together. Almighty Father, Son, and Spirit, the only triune, eternal being that there is, how grateful and and full of hope and joy we are that you have revealed yourself to us by your word, with conviction by your spirit, and Lord, with soft hearts we we come to you and we desire to know you more, we desire to worship in spirit and in truth, and we desire to be equipped to accomplish your works. Lord, I pray for these dear friends. Lord, you brought us together and we have become friends. And I just pray for your ongoing faithfulness to them, Lord. We need to understand with great breadth and depth and humility these things in your word. And you need to equip us, Lord, please, that we might speak words of life and, and be faithful witnesses to our Lord. Lord, we live in a troubling time and we do pray for joy in our experiences, joy in our lives as we learn to rest in and trust in our great Savior, Christ the Lord. And in His name we pray, Father. Amen. I do want to let you know, if, if any of you guys have a prayer request of some kind that you would like to ask uh, Leanne and I and the kids to be praying for and be praying about it. I'd be more than happy to do that. You could email it to me. You could call me and tell it to me. Um, my phone works here just as well as it worked there. So just uh, don't hesitate to give me a call. Um, our passage here, we're going to start at verse 13. In chapter 9 of... Uh, Romans at verse 13, we are dealing with a very uh, difficult passage of Scripture. Um, Your troubles in it are far from over, just because it is hard. It's it's difficult for us to really get our our minds around this. I'm going to try to help you make some progress in it, and I really do want to encourage you to uh, take some notes, if you will, and... um, and if you're working on some aspect after our, our time in the Word together this morning, if you're kind of wrestling through something, contact me. Give me a call and, and we will, um, then I'll know where you're at and uh, I'd like to help you thinking it through, see if we can make any other ground with other scriptures or not. But I'm going to read now to you from verse 13 to 18. Okay, verse 13 to 18 begins with, as it is written. So we know we're kind of in the middle of a thought here. This, this, this verse here is meant to reinforce something that's already been underway. And that's what we had covered the last time we were um, here in Romans 9. He says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? 
Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And I really do mean with all my heart, may the Lord help you and I to um, understand and believe what it is that he's showing us in his word here this morning. For you and I to get Romans in its depth is one of the most important studies in your Christian life. It really is. The, the breadth and the depth that's covered here in the book of Romans have almost all of the vital truths of, uh, of what our faith in God through Christ is all about. So make it a goal of yours to be constant in your in your study of and your work on uh, in improving your knowledge and your understanding of what the book of Romans teaches. The Spirit, as you recall, at, at the beginning of chapter 9, introduces to us or reminds us that most of Israel is lost. Most of Israel is not saved. And as Paul begins... This chapter, he is expressing a, a very strong uh, desire for their salvation. He loves them very, very dearly because he is one of them. And he recognizes that the Jews are such a crucial piece of history in the world regarding God's interaction with men. The Jews are just a remarkable, uh, wonderful uh, nation of people. <clears throat> without faith in Christ for all of your righteousness you cannot be saved this message in, in its very very summarial form when I say it like this that there is no salvation outside of faith in Christ this seems to be different than what most of Israel understood to be God's promise through Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Abraham was promised that he and his offspring who would who would uh, ratify their participation in the covenant by circumcision would be blessed. They believed that they would be blessed. And this, this is why most of Israel, if, if not all of Israel, believes they are on the road to heaven and eternal life when the Lord Jesus comes to Jerusalem and when He comes to Israel. But as Paul begins to teach the details and the nitty-gritty of the Gospel, of course you remember... In Romans chapter 4, he teaches us that Abraham believed 
God and this belief, this faith in God and God's promise is credited to Abraham for his righteousness. Okay? And and this 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 idea of being justified by faith to many or most of the Jews and then also by by many Gentiles in our day, this is a strange way of attaining righteousness and eternal life. And so remember, he is still addressing this issue that there there is one way of faith that most of the Jews have missed. In chapter 9 and verse 6, look there in your Bible, where he said, Not all are of Israel who are of Israel. And you might think that he's... uh, you know, just playing with words, because it, it seems that Paul says there are two kinds of Israels. And are there? Are there two kinds of Israel that, that Paul is, is speaking about? And yes, there is. He is speaking about two kinds of Israel. There is an Israel who is Israel because they are actually legitimately the children of Israel who is what was his other name you guys remember the other name of Israel who was who the man who took the name Israel when he was renamed who was that who wrestled with the Lord Jacob Jacob okay so they they trace their lineage they trace their family tree back to this man and then of course back to Abraham so the spirit of God is preparing you and I, and he's preparing the Jews to understand this teaching that not all are of Israel who are of Israel, that most of Israel is outside of God's salvation. In some ways, we could see a parallel in our own lives to a kid who's born in a Christian home. He he calls himself a Christian because he was born in a Christian home. He thinks he's a Christian. He's been going to church all of his life. And 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 then the apostle says something like, "Not all are Christians who are Christians." This is a very similar kind of a statement. And some of you I know have a testimony that's like this. You grew up in a home where you knew you were a Christian until one day, in God's grace, you realized, oh, I'm not really a Christian. My, my life is full of Christian culture, but I am not truly a, a born-again person. This passage is speaking to the Jews in that way. And so, the Jews who are curious about this teaching the Christians who are trying to understand with depth what he is talking about here are listening carefully. Because what we realize is that the Jews took a misstep early in the history of the Jews. Many of the Jews in the line of Abraham misunderstood something or some things and they got off track. The first example Paul gave us was that not all of Abraham's children are Israel, but the children of whom are Israel. And it was initially, the first child would have been the child of Sarah. 
Sarah's child is the child of promise. So Abraham had two children, but only one of those children is considered a child of promise. So right away, you and I begin to see how the Word of God and how God Himself makes a distinction between Israel and Israel. Okay, Abraham did have those two children. He had the first child, which his name was Ishmael, and then the next child, which is Isaac. He had both of those children, but only one of them is considered a child of the promise because only one of them was promised. And then we're also given really the same illustration, but by a different mother, the mother Rebecca. Rebecca has two children. One of the child's name is Esau, and the other child's name is Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. Esau is the elder. Esau is the one who has the the birthright of the firstborn. But before the children are born, Romans 9 teaches us, before they are born, Romans 9 says, God says, the older will serve the younger. So we're learning that God is predetermining which child, before the children are born, is going to be the carrier of God's blessing. Which child is going to be the line through whom comes God's blessing? We're learning very early here in this chapter that God has a particular plan, a particular path by which He is going to bless that person and then bring the blessing to the nations following them. So let's, before we get really into the weeds here with, with Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, I want to remind you that you and I can rest in what God's Word says. When, As we're reading through this, we really can understand, at least to varying degrees, we can understand what the Word says, we can hear what it says, we can believe and trust what it says, and the parts that, that trouble us, the parts that we can't quite figure out, we can leave those things in God's hands and trust Him for what He has said and what He's willing to tell us at this point. So there's a couple important points that Paul makes. And and the, the first one that he made that he wants to make sure nobody is confused about, and this is helpful for you and I in this situation, he says, it's not as though the Word of God was made of no effect, which is a roundabout way of saying it's not that God said something that He didn't do. So we see that very early in... Romans chapter 9. Let me put my finger on this. Verse 6. Do you see where it says, it's not that the Word of God has taken no effect. In other words, there are some who are going to listen to Paul's reasoning and his teaching and they're going to say, well, if the gospel of faith in Christ, righteousness by Christ is true, if that's true, then the promise to Abraham can't be true. And Paul is insisting that is not true. God's Word is sure. God's Word is certain. And he's made that point and he made that point by reminding us about Isaac and then Jacob and Esau. So the gospel Paul is teaching us, the gospel of repentance of sin, faith in Christ, righteousness by Christ is in perfect keeping with what had been said to Abraham. They are not counter to one another. The particular child born to Abraham and then the particular child born to Isaac and Rebekah, those particular children are the ones through whom come 
God's blessing. The Jews listening to this message very, very quickly and clearly know that's right. Listen carefully, brothers and sisters. Listen carefully. God never promised He was going to save all of the children. He never said all of the children. He said He was going to save the children of promise. He said He was going to bless the children of the promise. Make note of that and let that impact how you're reading and thinking about Scripture. Then, the, the next point, so that's the first point made, and if, if, if you missed it, go back and listen to this tomorrow or the next day when we get it online. I want you to listen through this, this lesson carefully so you track. The next big point that Paul is teaching in the chapter is that the Spirit is teaching and illustrating God's prerogative in electing and calling. The Spirit is making this point that God elects whom He wills and He calls whom He wills. It's really important that you see that that particular truth is coming out of this teaching in chapter 9. So I believe if you look at verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. In Isaac your seed shall be called. In other words, the seed of the promise will be called out of or from Isaac, from the line of Isaac. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, O come and Sarah will have a son. And by the time we get down to verse uh, 12, actually start in 11, the children not yet being born, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. What's the difference between the blessed and the unblessed? God's calling. God's calling is the difference between the one who is blessed with God's love and the one who is not blessed with God's love. And, and we're going to be careful to define that here in a moment. But do you see, we need to recognize this connection between election and calling. And you also remember, I believe you'll remember very easily, in Romans chapter 8 is where it says, those whom he foreknew, these he predestined. Those he predestined, these he called. This comes in steps, doesn't it? Do you know who God foreknew? Shake your head and I'm going to read your answers. No. You know why? It's a secret. God knows whom he has foreknown. Do you guys know who he predestined? No. You don't know. Can you tell whom God has called? Yes. The call is something that happens in our world. The call is something that happens in our families. The call is something that even the Lord Jesus speaks. Your preacher speaks. You speak. A calling. And, and Paul gets to this too. And that's really the subject of Romans chapter 10. Is where this, 
this secret thing of predestination and foreknowledge actually comes in our world is in Romans 10. It's called calling. Calling and election go together. The Spirit teaches that it is God's prerogative to elect and call. It is God's will. It is God's initiative. Another term you're familiar with when we were speaking about the theology of salvation is, is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in salvation. God wills now I'm just saying this in, in, a, in a general way right now God wills according to his love God wills according to his mercy God wills according to his compassion and we're going to touch on his compassion and his mercy a little bit further down into our text here but when God by his mercy and compassion wills to love Jacob for example it is because of his love and his compassion that he does so. And you do recall, you will recall, you should recall, make a note, go back and look at Ephesians 1.3. In love is where we see, is how we see God predestining. So the passage teaches the believing to focus on God's will and his mercy when we are trying to understand who is saved. When we're trying to understand the call of salvation. So, when we get to this quote that we're focusing on this morning, when it's speaking about Jacob and Esau, Jacob I have loved, in verse 13. Esau I have hated. That is a quotation from the book of Malachi. The nation of Israel is in a discussion with God through the prophet's mouth in the book of Malachi. And Malachi charges Israel with saying this, How have you loved us? And God replies to them, I have loved you. Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Israel would know their love from God in knowing God's choice of Jacob over Esau, or in more general terms, who does Esau uh, who, who, who does Esau represent? What nation comes from Esau? Edom. The whole people of Edom. Israel could look and see how Edom has unfolded historically and how Israel has unfolded historically. And Israel knows, obviously, they have been favored. Israel has been favored through Jacob, and Esau has not. Edom has not. And so, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, followed by this question, what shall we say then, in verse 14, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then he goes on to offer an argument as to why God has not been unjust in saying that. So let's speak, let's speak just for a couple of minutes about unexpected hatred. Unexpected hatred. Love of Jacob, I think all of us are very easy and quick to receive and even think that we understand. Love of Jacob. Hatred of Esau, no. Hatred of Esau, we are not prepared to, to say we fully get. 
I don't think. I don't think most of you are prepared to say, I get this and I understand why the scripture says this this way. And so, you might even go on to say in your mind and in your heart, how can God hate if God is love? Do any of you wonder that? Have you wondered why Romans 9 says, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated, and you know that God is love. You know that in John chapter 3, the scriptures say, for God so loved the world. How do you justify this? And listen, brother and sister, I really earnestly want you individually to wrestle with these texts because this is where... This is where some people are going to reject the gospel. This is where some people are going to prefer to invent their own God instead of the God of the Bible. If you won't wrestle with the deeper things of our faith and sort them out, then how do you expect the unbeliever to be able to try and sort these things out if you won't even try to deal with it for a few minutes? So I want to encourage you guys to work on this. Don't be saying to yourself, well, the scripture doesn't really mean this. That there's, there's some mistake in the way Paul has said this. Because God doesn't hate anybody. Don't jump to those kinds of conclusions, please. Don't do that. Have a strong confidence that all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is the word of God. All scripture is true. So you can't give yourself a cop-out or an easy way out and say, well, it just doesn't mean that. Instead, grapple with it. And let's see if we can make some progress on a proper heart's response to this verse so that we understand what the Apostle has meant to teach us about it. Now, one of the first things you're going to want to make sure you notice here is at verse... um, 14 is a response to the statement, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. There's a response. It says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, that Paul begins verse 14 like this, that means he knows. That means the Spirit knows you are already a little bit riled about this verse. The first question is, is there unrighteousness with God? Or in other words, is it fair that God loves Jacob and hates Esau? And then the answer to the question is what? It is certainly not. God knew what your response would be and he knew you might be offended. Has God offended you? Do you feel offended by God's words? Or do you find yourself in a position where you feel like you need to work a little harder in understanding the God who is our Savior? Do you need to labor at understanding what it is that these things mean? Or do you marvel? Do you marvel that there is so much about God that you don't get yet? Is it amazing to you that you've been a Christian for However long you've been a Christian and you have no idea how to explain this because it's a difficult thing for you to respond to or a thing for you to answer to. 
You know, this is such a great example. Take note of this too. This is such a great example that the Word of God is like a seed. You remember in the teaching of the Lord Jesus? He said the Word is like a seed. And what happens when seeds are sown? What's the first thing that happens? Satan will come and snatch it up. Satan will come and eat it. Why? Because he doesn't want it to settle into the soil. He doesn't want the seed of God's Word to settle into your heart and begin taking root and produce the fruit that it's supposed to be producing. So hear this Word. Read this Word. Look at this and, and, and be careful with how your heart is going to respond to the Lord's Word because Satan is going to try to snatch this Word right out of your heart. We know that this was a rhetorical question. Is there a righteousness with God? The, the, the Spirit asked the question like that so that you will recognize that this is, this is how people say something almost sarcastically. In other words, would you be so silly as to think God was unrighteous for feeling this way about Jacob and Esau? No, you wouldn't think that. You know God can't do something unrighteous. You know He can't say something unrighteous. And then he goes on to say where these thoughts come from. How does he establish this? How does, how does he make his point that you can be so sure about the point that he's making? Well, he says a quote from Moses in verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, when Paul answers this question this way, now let's focus it. Esau, I have hated. Is that compassionate or not compassionate? That's not compassionate. You and I know that this hatred of Esau means that, that he is being passed over. That Jacob is being prioritized. The love and favor to Jacob is being put forth and Esau is not. So, when he quotes this quote, from, it's actually from Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 15 and 16. You can make a note of it. You can have a look of it. Moses was being told that they were going to press on through the wilderness and into the promised land in Genesis 15. And Moses was told that the angel of God would be traveling with him. And Moses said, God, please, if you yourself will not go with me, then I don't want to go. God, I want you to go with me. I'll read to you verse 15, Genesis 15 and verse 15. God says to Moses, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they will return here. I'm sorry, I accidentally quoted you um, the, the words to Abraham when Abraham was told the people would be able to go into the promised land. The quote to Moses is, is in Exodus 33.15. I apologize. Exodus 33.15, the words to Moses says, If your presence doesn't go with us, do not bring us up. God, if you won't go with me, then don't take us anywhere. How will it be known that your people and I found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have spoken. You have found grace in my sight. And I know you by name. And he said, Moses said, Please show me your glory. 
And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now just think for a second. This isn't very hard to figure out. Why did God say, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious here? Why does God say this? He says it because it is God's prerogative. It is God's choice. It is God's sovereignty. Will he respond to Moses with favor and grace? Will he answer Moses' request with kindness and mercy or will he not? Well, God assures him while answering this question, while answering this plea, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show grace to who I want to show grace to. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy to. As the early Christians in Rome wonder about the lostness of Israel, as they wonder about God doing something that was unjust, to Israel who is not saved do you see how this answer begins to give some consolation begins to explain that that God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy God has compassion on whom he has compassion they begin to understand they're reminded they're taught that it is of God's sovereign will that anybody would be saved that God would show compassion on somebody. It's according to God's sovereignty. It's according to His mercy. When, when we hear this, these words that God says to Moses, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Does this draw your attention to the hatred of God? Do you feel resentment for somebody that God is not showing mercy to in this passage? No. When, when we read this and when we hear God being merciful and compassionate to Moses, we actually are admiring the compassion of God. We, we appreciate the mercy and the compassion of God. It doesn't make us feel bad to somebody who did not receive God's mercy or compassion here. We are actually confronted with the truth that is being revealed in Romans 9 that it is according to God's sovereignty that he will have compassion on whom he wills. God is the sovereign distributor of compassion and mercy and his love is a great mercy. His compassion is a great mercy. Can, can, can you agree that for God to show favor even on Jacob is an act of his mercy. Can you see that? What if God never said anything to Jacob or Esau? God could not be found with any wrong. God could not be charged with any wrong. But instead, when we hear that God loves Jacob and gives his favor to Jacob, we realize, we recognize that it was up to his will and his will alone to determine to do this. Now, I do want to hate, help you think for a moment about God's hatred. This, the, the passage doesn't say much about what this means, that God hates Esau. But we're going to look at Luke 6.35 and Deuteronomy 2.1-7. Luke 6.35, real briefly, turn there without losing your place in Romans. 
the Lord Jesus is teaching to the, the crowds in Jerusalem in Luke 6.35. And the Lord Jesus says, Love your enemies. This teaching begins with, with Him reminding them of something that, that the Jews only sort of knew from the Old Testament. But the Lord says, Love your enemies, do good, and lend hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He's kind to the unthankful and the evil. Therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. In the book of Matthew, the Lord says, you have heard that it is said, hate your enemies. But I say unto you, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, so this, this gives you a little bit of help in trying to understand what does he mean by the hatred of Esau here? What does it mean by the hatred of Esau? Well, God doesn't hate like a man hates. Can you see that? Do you see that the reason the Lord is teaching this way in Luke chapter 6 is because men have their own special way of hating. And the Sermon on the Mount and this passage in Luke says you, you, you don't treat people with manly hatred. You don't hate people the way the world hates. Here's another one. Deuteronomy 2, 1-7. to This one's helpful too. This one's very interesting. During the Exodus, the people of Israel and Moses are walking around the desert. And so they're giving some instructions here. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, it says, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the sea. And they're just recounting what they have done and what God had told them. And the Lord spoke to me, says Moses, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days, meaning they went around the edge of it. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. Now listen carefully and, and get your mind around God's hatred for Esau. Command the people saying this, and, and you know how many people there are, right? There's probably about two and a half million people. Command them this way. You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat and you shall buy water from them with money that you may drink now when you read this passage in Deuteronomy and then you're trying to put together what we're reading out of the book of Malachi and here in the book of Romans chapter 9 you should very plainly be able to see that God's hatred is not like a man's hatred is it? You and I wouldn't use the word hatred to describe 
what God's attitude toward Esau is because we see kindness being demonstrated to Esau in his hatred. God doesn't hate like a man. God is not a man that he should lie is a a verse we worked on uh, memorizing a year or two ago. Nor like a son of man that he should repent, I think is how the rest of the verse goes. When we read Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, what I'm trying to show you is that Number one, God does not hate the way a man hates. It doesn't mean what you think it means when you first read it. You can be safe to believe that the scriptures that say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated are true. And you cannot be 100% sure in trying to decide What exactly does this hatred mean until we go further and try to understand does he give us any more insight into this here in Romans or in other places of the scripture? Why does God let some men go to hell? Now this is a difficult question. I think this question naturally arises out of this passage. I think when we're thinking about election and who is not elect we naturally begin to think this question and I think this passage will help us in some part to touch on the answer of this question the question is partially addressed in the following lines here so if you look back in Romans 9 and a moment ago we read verse 15 where God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And notice the contrast here so that you take away the main meaning here. This contrast is so that you focus on the right thing, which says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Why does he say that? If, if you're a Christian in 2023 and you're trying to put these things in context with one another, why does he say it this way? What does he want you to notice? He wants you to notice that it is the mercy of God towards men or women that is the key thing in view. God has mercy on whom he wills. Salvation is contingent on the mercy of God. Hope for eternal life is contingent on the grace and the compassion of God. So, are you a person who presently has hope in eternal life? Are you a person who has enough understanding of the gospel so that your knowledge of your own sin and the righteousness of Christ and the shed blood of Christ for atonement of sin results in you having hope of eternal life? Is this the gospel and your hope? If this is the case, do you realize what he's teaching you is that this is because of the compassion and the mercy of God. He has compassion on whom he wills. And that turns into a calling, which we've already touched on in this passage. 
A calling alerts you to these things. The softening of your hearts under God's sovereignty is according to His compassion and mercy. This is why you would believe and somebody else will not believe. It is the only biblical explanation of it. So as we move along in in the passage here, when he says, I will have compassion, I will have mercy. And he goes on to verse 16. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now he's going to illustrate this. How does he illustrate this? How does he show you and I what he means by this? He's going to give a negative example. He says, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth, Now, is God's power shown in Pharaoh for Pharaoh's favor or for his disfavor? How is the demonstration of God's power going to result in Pharaoh's life, in Pharaoh's heart? Can you remember the story well enough? So, Follow the lines of the argument. Again, we're reading a a rather complicated argument. It's many lines long in the argument. It is not of him who wills. It's not according to the will of the man who is looking for God's blessing. It is not according to the will of the man who wants salvation. It's according to God's compassion and mercy. And then the scripture says, For this very purpose I have raised you up. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose. What is the purpose? What is the purpose Pharaoh is raised up for? Was it a positive purpose? Was it to show him God's favor and mercy and love like Jacob? No. This is the opposite example. Pharaoh is raised up for this purpose. And frankly, if you are sober, if you are a thinking Christian who is giving the scripture the due that it is worth, it should cause a little bit of trembling in inside of you, a little bit of awe inside of you that God raises some up for this purpose. It should it should rattle us at least a little bit. Because it makes us realize that every deed of men is under the sovereign direction of God's hand. He says The scripture speaks to Pharaoh for this reason I raised you up that I may show my power in you and my name may be declared in all the earth. What is the purpose of wicked people rising to power on planet earth? My dear friends, what is the purpose of wicked men and women in this world? Why do they rise up? Why are they mean to Christians? Why could Pharaoh be so mean and, and persistent in his persecution and even his, his insisting that the, the newborns be put to death? Why? Many people want to ask, God, why would you let things like this happen? How could this be, God? 
Well, the scripture says, for this reason, God raises Pharaoh up. Pharaoh betrays his word to Israel and Moses over and over again. He lies to them. He says he's going to let them go and then he changes his mind. One, in one passage, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart and in the next passage, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. What is the purpose of the passage we're reading in Romans 9 about God's compassion and God's mercy? God's love and God's hatred. What is the point of these lines here? What is God trying to teach us about, number one, who's saved and who's not saved? Number two, what should we think about those that He has called? What should we think about His calling to us? How should that make us feel? Does it make us feel sad that there are some that will not be saved? Does it make us feel overwhelmed? That there's some people that God would raise up simply to demonstrate His power in them? Does it cause you to recoil? Does it cause you to say, the Word of God must surely be an error? God could not possibly do that. You really need to be careful in your going over this and following the, the lines of argument, following the line of the teaching. God raised him up so that he could bring the plagues on him. God raised him up so that he could destroy this most powerful and great kingdom of Egypt. He raised him up so he could put to death the firstborn of the kingdom of Egypt. He raised them up so that he could take a weak people who were slaves and release them from their slavery under the blood of the Lamb. He raised up this oppressor so that the oppressed could be redeemed and atoned for. Now when, when Israel is leaving Egypt, when they're going through the Red Sea, when they're on their way out, do they feel sorry for Pharaoh and the soldiers of Pharaoh? They, they may have known an Egyptian or two that they loved. But maybe they saw all of those Egyptians that they loved betray them. According to their own free will, they did. Every one of those people who oppressed and took advantage of and killed the Jews did it within their free will. They did. Did they feel sad? Did the Jews feel sad that Pharaoh's firstborn died as they were leaving? They might have. Should, should any of us rejoice when somebody's child dies, even the child of our enemies? No, we shouldn't. We shouldn't rejoice in that. We shouldn't celebrate that. But this, this, this passage of Scripture teaches the sovereignty of God to such an acute degree, it really blows our minds. But what I want you to realize that begins very early in the passage is that this subject is raised so that you would recognize you who have heard God's call. According to God's purpose for election, you have heard God's call so that you would begin to believe that He called you before you were born. In His compassion and mercy, He made His plan known to you. He made you aware of your sinfulness. 
He made you believe and trust in the blood of Christ for atonement for your sin. His compassion took your stony hearts, took your sinful, rebellious attitudes toward God and turned you to Him with hope. Hope for forgiveness of your sins. This passage really focuses on the compassion and the mercy of God because when you look at what happened in the life of Pharaoh and you realize such a thing has not happened to you. Such a thing has not happened to me. I don't represent Esau. I don't represent Pharaoh. I represent Jacob. The favor of God has smiled on me. Why? Because I'm a good man? Because I've been more diligent than others to find the truth of salvation? Because I'm somehow worthy of it? The scriptures are clear. There's none righteous. There's, there's none worthy of this love and attention of God. But believe me, and spend some time looking over this passage with me, Later this afternoon and this evening, God is meant to show you His mercy. He's meant to show you His compassion and His love by calling you to Himself. Now, what I want you to make sure you know before we end this morning, this, these, these words about what theologians call reprobation, these, these words about election and calling and, and these hard words about Pharaoh being raised up to be a demonstration of God's power. These do cause us anxiousness and it causes us to be unsure about, well, why should we share the gospel with anybody? What's the point of... of even sharing with anybody. And that's Romans 10 answers this question. We're going to finish Romans 9, of course, but I did want to make sure we looked at Romans 10, verses 6 to 11 together. So turn to Romans 10 and, and verse 6. Paul asked the question at the beginning of Romans chapter 10, well, what about Israel? Are they going to be saved? Will they be saved? Is there any hope for Israel? That's where we. That's, this is the context where, where, where Christians like you and I have been listening to these words about election, about the love for Jacob and the promises of God for favor toward Jacob, and God passing over Esau. And that's probably the best way to look at it. God's passing over Esau. What is our responsibility as Christians to? the men and women of the world. As we look at verse 6, he says, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And we'll get into the details of this in some weeks down the road here. But he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And what that means is, is you're, you're not supposed to be wondering who can go up into heaven and find the truth of salvation for you. That's what it's referring to. And you're not supposed to say the next thing either. Who will descend into the abyss? Each of these things has an effect on, on where you ultimately really believe Christ is. Okay? That is to bring Christ down from above 
or that is to bring Christ up from the dead is what it says there in verse 7. But what does the word of faith say? What does the righteousness of faith say? How do we be saved? How can we be saved? How can we know what a hope is? What does he say next? He says, the word is near you, in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this is the calling that is not secret. This is the calling that, that you and I speak into the world. We speak into the lives of our friends. This word of reconciliation Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. This is going all the way back to Romans chapter 3. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever, listen carefully, this is the message we proclaim secret foreknowledge, secret predestination becomes manifest in the world through this calling. And that's why he says, the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That also harkens all the way back to uh, Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3. This gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. The same Lord over all is rich to all who do what? What does it say? Look at that. It is rich to all who do what? Who call on Him. Who call upon Him. Salvation is for men and women. It is for all men and women who would turn to Him and call upon Him. And so you and I preach the gospel to every creature. And when they hear this call, when the lost hear this call, some will hear with faith. He finally says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You and I preach that. You and I share that with our kids. You and I share that with our friends at work. This does not betray or this does not say election is not true. This is how election turns into fruition and faith in this world. As we call the men and women with the message of John the Baptist, with the message of Christ, and we tell them with the message in the words of Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When men hear these words and they feel guilty, they feel convicted about their sinfulness toward God, we tell them the gospel. We tell them that Christ has died for sinners. We tell them that the shed blood of the Lamb of God has atoned for sin. And He died for sinners and He rose from the dead for our justification. This is the gospel. And it includes, it includes this glorious favor and love of God in election. I don't know how to put it all together, frankly. I don't, I don't know how it all 
works, but I know what I have been telling you is what Romans is teaching us. So I want to encourage you and challenge you to be in awe. Be worshipers of the God who put it in your hearts to look to Him for hope. To look to Him for your righteousness and peace and salvation. God has done this if you have this hope in your heart. God has saved you if you have this belief in your heart. This is the gospel of God's salvation of sinners. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. And it should evoke great and awesome praise from you and gratitude from you and hope in you because you begin to see that God is the one who has worked salvation from before time began even until now.